everyone. Welcome to A Gut Feeling. My name is Jake and I'm joined here today with Dave. As health coaches and educators, we've helped thousands of clients optimize their life by healing their gut. Our aim with this podcast is to provide you with some of those tools. And before we get into it, don't forget to check out the show notes for links to our social media profiles. And if you like what we've got to say, go with your gut and give this podcast a follow. Now let's get into today's show. <laughs> So today, Dave, we're going to talk about a, a topic we're getting stacks of questions on, and it's something we've been getting questions on for a while now, and they sort of haven't diminished over time. In fact, I feel like we're getting more and more questions about this, and so we thought it's probably time we bite the bullet and do an episode on it. We we held out as long as possible because we just don't know if this is going to get censored or if it's going to be allowed, but we figured you guys are asking for it, so here we go. Today, we're going to be talking about long COVID what it is, what the symptoms are, what supplements we're using, what we think is going on from a gut perspective and potentially some other perspectives and some other ways we need to be looking at this. So that's what today's episode is all about. As always, this is not any, um, you know, not intended to diagnose or treat or anything like that. This is, you know, if you are experiencing these symptoms, we really, uh, I guess, suggest that you talk to your medical professional and your doctor about this stuff but we want to share an alternative perspective and what we're seeing work with clients. So what is long COVID? Just let's start there. This is a definition which is evolving. Obviously, it's not a definition that existed, you know, two years ago, um, but it is being recognized. It's also called um, post-COVID-19 condition, more, more commonly referred to as long COVID. And essentially, it's not a very complex definition. It's simply a condition where someone has symptoms that have persisted for longer than 12 weeks after they got COVID. And that's kind of about it. It can sort of be any symptoms that are not explainable by an alternative diagnosis. So Dave, let's start there. What kind of symptoms might we expect to see from someone who's experiencing long COVID or a post-COVID condition? Yeah, I mean, obviously there can be a whole array of different symptoms. I mean- Yep. Maybe that's what can make it quite tricky for people yeah. who are experiencing long COVID because it could be definitely neurological problems, okay? So it can be like anxiety, maybe even like, you know, bouts of depression, but definitely like, you know, poor concentration. So it's obviously affecting the brain. Yes. But definitely affects like energy. So people would be experiencing like lethargy. But, I, you know, I think a lot of people do experience, you know, like dizziness and, you know, once again, like fatigue, yeah? Yeah. And obviously, you know, people can get gastrointestinal symptoms as well okay so that can be a common one i mean that's an important one because i feel like that's one that's not really talked about all that much and i don't know about you but this is one where i've seen this i guess kind of evolve over time i feel like initially when i had clients who were getting covid there didn't seem to be a, a whole lot of gi symptoms they were getting and i feel like more recently over the last sort of six months or so a lot of people who've had covid more recently they seem to be developing more of these GI symptoms post-COVID. I don't, I don't know if you've got an explanation for that. Is that something you've, you've observed as well? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, I think I even told you about my own experience. Yeah, yeah. Like my, mine was all gastrointestinal. Yeah. So I actually experienced, you know, a fair bit of vomiting. So there was a fair bit of purging there. And, you know, I, I did experience a fair bit of like diarrhea. <laughs> okay. So I think I told you about that. Uh, and it just sort of lasted a day, okay? And then the next day I sort of woke up and I was perfectly fine. But it was mm. like, 
I wasn't even sure if I actually really had COVID because all my symptoms were actually like gastrointestinal. Even when I spoke to people, they go, oh, you probably had some sort of foodborne pathogen or like gastroenteritis or something, but guarantee you I, I definitely had COVID. But other people have definitely experienced like, um, you know, vomiting and, mm. and, and severe diarrhea. Okay, there are probably some other symptoms on top of that. But yeah, I, I would I would think this is just to do with like you know the cytokine storm, and, and and we'll obviously probably get into that a little bit more, like the pro-inflammatory storm. Okay, because we've got to remember that whether the you're getting exposed to the virus, whether it's going up the nasal passage and like NOLT, like nasal associated lymphoid tissue, and then it eventually it's going to hit BOLT, which is bronchial associated. Lymph- lymphoid tissue. So it's obviously going to hit the epithelium within the lungs. Okay. And then there you actually create that, you know, that cytokine storm. Okay. And that's going to have a bit of a ricochet effect into regions like the, the gastrointestinal tract as well. Okay. Because we like, once again, the, the human body is built on all these axes and it's really important to understand, especially around something like long COVID that a big factor here is the the gut to lung access. That's probably actually one of the big areas. And that's to do with things like, you know, malt. Some of these things we've mentioned before, like mucosa-associated lymphoid tissue, that's the broad terminology. And within that, you've got GALT, gut-associated lymphoid tissue, BOLT, bronchio-associated lymphoid tissue, and NOLT, nasal-associated lymphoid tissue. So, you know, maybe I'll get back to talking about the cytokine storm. Okay, but- well, let's let's go slow here. So I guess when someone's experiencing these symptoms, it's been 12 weeks since they had covid what is and what isn't happening? So, so what isn't happening? It's not like they have this active infection still at that point, do they? That's not what's causing these symptoms, this ongoing almost like relapse in, in COVID infection, is it? I'd say in terms of what's really happening here is it's sort of to do with like collateral damage. Mm-hmm. And, and once again, they've shown this in research when people get exposed to the virus. And when we talk about like antigen antibody response or immune response, some of the regions in the body where you have the highest amount of like antigen and antibody response and immune response is actually the, the lungs. Mm. And obviously we, we always talk about the epithelium and they are the most protective physical barrier in the human body. Okay. And once again, we're just talking about tissue here. We're talking about connective tissue. It's made up of collagen. There's six different types of collagen. The predominant one is like type one collagen, but obviously we've got these epithelium in the blood brain barrier. We've got them within the, the lungs. We've got them within the stomach lining, the small intestine, top of the gallbladder, you know, colon, large intestine. And so what people need to understand, okay, is that you get exposed to something like a, like a virus and the virus essentially is going to hit the epithelium within the lungs. Now there's all these different types of epithelium in the lungs, maybe a try and contain myself a little bit here, but you've got cubidoyal cells, squamous cells, okay, like goblet cells, one of the major ones, and they produce things like mucin and uh, secrete IgA. And then when you get exposed to the virus, that's going to create this immune response. And when we're having like an antigen antibody response, there's like this trigger mechanism. And so the virus will be classified as like a trigger mechanism. And then you're going to ramp up things like immunoglobulins, like antibodies. That's why the antibodies get raised up. IgA, that's an antibody, IgG, IgE, IgM. Okay. And then so, you get- so Dave, can I ask, I don't know if this is something you've thought too much about, but what would be what would we expect to see in blood work at that point? So would we expect to see globulin elevated? We'd expect to maybe see like a sonophils elevated. Yeah, I mean, like once again, like you'd see probably some of your immune cells are going to be elevated. So that could be the total white blood cell count. The, yeah. And like initially it's acute. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's an elevation in like the neutrophils, probably the lymphocytes, because that's like an indication around, you know, cytokine activity. Yeah. You know, the sonophils, basophils, okay, are going to be elevated. Okay. Monocytes um, towards the tail end. Yeah. So th- once again, there's, yeah, there's, there's, 
there's more of this cell deactivation taking yeah. place. Okay? And then with that, then you get more mediator response. Yeah. So we've got like, there's a trigger mechanism, there's the cell deactivation, and then there's mediator response. So, you know, examples around this, like cytokines, okay, these are protein messengers, interleukins, protein messengers, you know, prostaglandins, histamine, okay? So then you're going to get more of that mediator response, okay? Mm. And I'm just and talking so about- in, in blood, so that's going to show up as what? Mm. CRP will be high, ESR will be high. Yeah, correct. Some of these like inflammatory markers, they're going to be more elevated, okay? So yes, ESR, CRP. I mean, look, obviously there's a lot of pro-inflammatory proteins that you, you, you're not testing within mm. the blood markers, but something like SAA, serum amyloid alpha, but you don't really test that within bloods or, or mm-hmm. very rarely. So then you're getting an increase in like these, the, these pro-inflammatory proteins. And once again, they're like they've, they've, they've shown this in research with actual COVID infection. Okay. And there's, there's, there's so many pro-inflammatory proteins that actually mm. get elevated in this instance. Okay. You know, example is like, you know, things like interleukin-1, that's like more pro-inflammatory, interleukin-6, that's probably the one that gets talked mm. about a lot more. And that signals CRP. Okay. So CRP is signaled by interleukin-6. Okay. Then things like IFNY, TNF-alpha, there's one called MCP-1, and that's to do with chemokines, and that's Mm. like macrophage recruitment. So you're getting like high white blood cell recruitment, Mm. and even more things like neutrophil recruitment, and it's really important to understand that because when you're getting like high neutrophil recruitment, you can actually get gastrointestinal neutrophil-mediated injury. So actually Mm. your own immune system can actually create damage to the gut lining. And like, like... once again, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about what's taking place here, needs to take place. Like I yeah. don't want to demonize it, okay? But obviously if this type of reaction was taking place regularly, then you can actually create damage to the gut lining. And, and obviously you can get that damage within the lungs as well, okay? So that's all a fairly acute response. This is going on over a week, couple of weeks kind of thing. So, so what then happens to cause these long COVID symptoms? Is, that, is it that that response continues to occur? Because it's no longer the the viral particles there, which are load, which is stimulating this response. So so what's happening? Yeah. So it's important for people to understand that when you get the rise in these pro-inflammatory proteins, and obviously I've reeled off a whole heap and and even things there's like beta defenses and all these types of things. Okay. But then you get a bit of like collateral damage to the epithelium. And once again, this is completely normal, but what should happen, okay, is that you do have certain types of cells and within the lungs, you've got like one of the major types of progenitor cells, okay? Like I've sort of like talked about progenitor cells before, okay? But the role of progenitor cells within the gastrointestinal tract, you've got intestinal stem cells, they're progenitor cells. And their role is to actually help with the renewal and the replenishment of the other intestinal epithelium. Well, basal cells are like the major progenitor cell within the, within the lungs, okay? And what they actually help with is the rejuvenation and the renewal of the other epithelium within the airways, so that renewal process is essential. But the way we've got to look at it, if there's a decent amount of collateral damage, and like once again, we can't just say that every single human being has got perfect epithelium within the mm. lungs and perfect epithelium within the gastrointestinal tract. Because from my experience, there's probably not a lot who actually do. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So there's already probably some collateral damage within that region anyway. And you can see that with you know certain respiratory conditions, like things like mm. COPD like, you know, inflammation in the lungs, like lung disease, like asthma, uh, emphysema, okay? That would be examples of when there's like damage within the lung region and damage to the epithelium and probably hyperpermeability taking place within the intracellular tight junctions uh, within the the lungs. So when you get this collateral damage, so the basal cells 
should actually have the capacity to actually help with that renewal and that replenishment process. But what happens, what I would say is, what happens when you've actually got damage to the basal cells or the progenitor cells? Now, yes, they can replace themselves, but sometimes even that capacity to replace themselves can be compromised. I'm not saying it doesn't take place. Now, if that's compromised, then you're just not actually going to have the capacity to actually help with the renewal and the replenishment of the other intestinal epithelium and they stay damaged. Okay. And if they stay damaged, then, you know, opportunistic bacteria residing within the lungs, because obviously we do have a lot of bacteria within the lungs, you know, and that could be like things like streptococcus pneumoniae, and that leads to obviously like pneumonia, uh, haemophilus influenza, that's influenza, okay, uh, staphylococcus, okay, and that would be like something like staph infection. So then you get a, a, a higher abundancy of the opportunistic bacteria, okay, and then essentially you get the infection. And so what I would say in the instance of something like, like long COVID is that this person doesn't really have a good capacity to actually help with that renewal and that replenishment process. And so that damage is, you know, all that renewal process is, is prolonged and then they leave themselves vulnerable to opportunistic bacteria. So in a nutshell, in case we lost people along the way, what you're <laughs> saying is there's essentially there, there was or is damage that occurred to the, the lining tissue, if you will. And because of the damage that may have occurred to that lining tissue or someone may be having compromised lining tissue in the first place, that's now left them more susceptible to bacterial infections and to bacterial byproducts entering into the blood and, and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing that, you know, and I know we've spoken about this before, but when I was talking about things like the malt and the gold and the bolts and the nolts, yeah, okay. but what's really important, like this is tissue. Mm. So what's really important is like amino acids. Okay, mm. and we've spoken about a lot of these things, you know, like glutamine, mm. methionine, glutamate, threonine. Uh, yeah, okay, like I mean, there's uh, you know cysteine. Okay, so there's a lot of these amino mm. acids. Okay, and I would say, you know, what happens if people aren't getting enough of these key, key building blocks, or there's even things like malnourishment, mm. uh, absorption issues, and so forth? Well, that's really going to compromise these uh, you know really important tissue regions. So. You're suggesting now that people who are experiencing long COVID have some compromisation of lining tissue, whether that's in the lungs, whether that's in the in the gut, in the intestines, but there's some damage here to the lining tissue and that's something we need to deal with. Is there other stuff going on as well or is that primarily the number one issue, do you think, in, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, once again, from my opinion, I, I actually probably put a lot down to like, you know, the basal cells. Mm-hmm. Okay. And hence, like, one of the things that I'm going to talk about a little bit later on uh, is something that actually helps to repair the basal cells and actually mm-hmm. helps with those progen- progenitor cells. Because if you can help with, with the, those basal cells, because, like, for example, if you've got damage to the basal cells, then that can be linked to complications like COPD, mm-hmm. like asthma. And those basal cells are just really, really important to actually help to repair the tissue. And that's via sort of complex cross-talking processes with fibroblasts and immune cells. And this, and this, so this, this make, I know it's complex what I'm talking about, okay, but this is really, really essential for this renewal process. And even like you would say that basal cells are really important for recognition of, let's say, even like past infections, okay, mm. uh, or past exposure to certain aspects around the environment. I don't mm. know if I've explained that perfectly well, but there's sort of like a, you know, like I would say a, a recognition process as well that basal cells are really important for. So obviously what I would say, so the, so the damage to the tissue 
leaves you more susceptible to the bacterial complications. And now you're going to get issues associated with the bacterial complications. So obviously the the, the bacteria is another layer within this. Again, I'm I'm sure we're going to cover some of those aspects. Yeah. Okay. So we've got tissue damage. We've got bacterial issues. We still have an elevation in some of these cytokines, interleukin-1, interleukin-6. These potentially cause a neurological inflammation and damage as well. Uh, You know, we tend to see... Well, what role do you think actually mitochondria plays in this? Is that more to do with the bacterial issues that, that are secondary or is there an issue there with COVID causing, having an effect on mitochondrial sort of, I guess, performance and density? What do you think is going on there? Well, obviously what I would say that with creating like the cytokine storm, okay, and creating, you know, even more things like epithelial permeability or the hyperpermeability, okay, then obviously the raising these pro-inflammatory proteins and also the fact that certain compounds and molecules that are able to pass through the intracellular tight junctions and obviously get, you know, within the bloodstream. Okay. Well, that's going to cause a lot of complications around the mitochondria and the cells and your DNA mm. and RNA. So definitely going to affect things like ATP, adenosine triphosphate. Mm. And hence why you would say that a lot of people with something like, like long COVID experiencing a lot of like energy issues, yeah. but even like, you know, uh, issues around the skin because that can be uh, common as well. Uh, but even obviously the the taste and and, and mm. smell. I mean, like a lot of the things that we're talking about here, or the loss of taste and smell, or that even like you know the respiratory. And that obviously that's a big mm. one as well, where people can have this persistent cough for for months and months on end. Like even in the realms of like six months plus. Mm. Yeah, okay, and just like that shortness of breath. Okay, so all the things that we're talking about. I mean, there is a big link here with microbiome imbalances. Mm. I mean, all those regions, I mean, the microbiome play a key role. I mean, obviously, people are always going to say I've got a bias towards the, the gut and the microbiome, and there, there is a bias there, but I always say that there is a bias for, for a good reason. Mm. So what would you expect to see? Again, I, we haven't talked about this, but what do you think you'd expect to see from a blood work perspective at that point where we're now a couple of months into it, someone still has some of these symptoms, that it's not part of this acute infection anymore, are the patterns that you would see then? Things obviously would be, I mean, it's it's hard from a, from yeah. a blood market perspective, okay, because obviously it comes down to collecting a lot more data, which you know, yeah. so a lot a lot of this is is quite speculative, yep. okay. Like I really want to emphasize that, but you know, you you might see like things are a lot, little bit more chronic now, and so maybe things are a lot more like immunosuppressed. So you might see that the total white blood cell count, the neutrophil count, a little bit more flatline. So maybe even things like the eosinophils and the basophils are a little bit more flatline. Obviously, we talk about like the MEBs, the combined total of the monocytes, the eosinophils and the basophils. That would probably be sitting, you know, a little bit more flatlined as well. So, so we're expecting his total white cell count to be low is what you're saying there. Yeah, and even things like the globulin, okay, like the, the globulin, which is obviously the total amount of all the globulins yeah. in the body, but it's a good reflection around immunoglobin activity. So yeah. when we're talking about things like secretory IgA and IgG and so forth, okay, so we would expect maybe the, the, the globulin to be a little bit more low end. But once again, I'm only throwing out a few markers here. Okay? Yeah. Be, what what but, about ferritin, Dave? From, from what perspective? Well, because we see ferritin, I don't know if you've seen this in bloods, but when I have clients who have an acute COVID infection, ferritin is often incredibly high, like very, very high. But then what I've seen is this, this sort of, I guess, rebound where post-COVID infection, I'm seeing quite a lot of people where their ferritin is quite low, like below what I'd say optimal values. 
And I mean, obviously, know, it makes sense from the from the initial perspective because obviously, when the ferritin yep. is really high, it can be a sign of systemic inflammation of the liver. Yeah. Okay, and obviously, that's that overburdening of the gut to liver access. Yeah. So, so that makes sense. I don't think there's any confusion there. But why would we see it low then? And and why? Because I feel like I'm seeing people have symptoms of of like actually essentially iron deficiency post COVID, and you're seeing this with hair loss, potentially some of their energy sort of issues and oxygenation issues. And I guess what I'm wondering is, is it perhaps that post-COVID, if they're still experiencing whether this is secondary infections with bacterial infections, which we'll talk about in a second, or whether it's just elevation in some of these cytokines still, is that potentially causing essentially iron deficiency of, of chronic inflammation or infection? Well, well once again, there's a good chance it could come down to the, like the epithelium. Again, mm. I mean, I know I put a lot of emphasis on that, but even something like ferritin, a lot of ferritin is actually stored within the enterocytes, which is mm. a type of epithelium, uh, which is they're a lot more abundant within the small intestine. So there's actually ferritin found within the, within the, within the epithelium, the mucosal cells. And also iron is obviously absorbed within the epithelium and even your ability to convert ferric iron okay, into ferrous iron, which is the more bioavailable mm. form of iron, that takes place within the epithelium as well. Okay, So if there's compromisation there, that's going to actually affect these processes. So I'm not saying it doesn't happen, like this mm. process doesn't happen, but it's obviously going to impede on that. Okay, mm. And also just the aspects around hepcidin. Okay? So yeah. if there's like viral infection, there's bacterial infection, and like in this instance, there's been both. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, and which so is essentially, I guess, what I was getting at there. And so, if that's the case, it's not an intake issue, is it? Like, someone can can up the iron intake, they can take the iron supplements, and it's not going to do really anything. Exactly. So, once again, it just it comes down to the epithelium and the, and the tissue. Mm. Okay. So, yeah, and obviously, you get the raise in the hep side and the and, and having the elevation in the hep side and affects your ability to uptake iron. So hepcidin, if people aren't familiar, it's just a hormone our body naturally produces to inhibit the absorption of iron, which is sometimes a good thing because iron can worsen these infections, which is why someone can become iron anemic. And that can be the result or the outcome of the body doing what it's intending to do, which is stop the absorption of iron. And so we end up with this potentially negative outcome, but it's ultimately the body's protective mechanism because it doesn't want to feed these pathogens yeah and whether it's also just some issues around the obviously the opportunistic bacteria that yeah. is probably going to be a little bit more abundant especially like you know post-covid infection infection mm. because obviously that would be to do with like you know the biofilm we've obviously spoken about this before because that polysaccharide matrix is made up of minerals like iron and magnesium and calcium yeah okay mm. so whether that's actually causing some complications with like you know aspects around like biofilm Okay, so before we jump into some things you might want to do to help, we've talked about damage to the epithelium. We've talked about this, this increase in inflammatory molecules, and we've alluded to this bacterial piece, but we haven't really talked about that. So where does that come into it? Yeah, there's, there's definitely a few aspects around this. I'll do my best to, to cover some of the major ones. But let's say uh, people who, who, who've got long COVID and they're experiencing that, that sort of like that constant or persistent cough. And maybe that's been like going on. Like I definitely know people who sit in this realms where they've had it for like, you know, six months and they've, you know, they've also, they have done research on this and they actually have shown that there's certain types of bacteria strains that people with this persistent cough, this sort of ongoing sort of like respiratory complication, okay, do tend to have a high prevalence in certain types of bacteria. And some of those bacteria strains are more like streptococcus species. So that is 
positive gram bacteria, which basically means it has one cell membrane and that outer membrane is made of peptidoglycan, like amino acids and sugars and has a periplasm. But there were certain types of like, uh, you know, more pathogenic strains of like positive gram bacteria, uh, streptococcus species. And one of those was streptococcus angiosis. And if you actually look at that particular strain, that's actually being linked to things like liver and brain abscesses. Now, I, like, I don't want people like, they're, they're going to be freaking out going, oh my God, I've got a, a liver abscess or a brain abscess. I'm just saying that it has been linked to those things. So a higher amount of that, and even like uh, Clostridium species, I think it was Clostridium dysporicum. Okay. So there's certain uh, strains that were a little bit more prevalent. And if actually, if you look at that, because a lot of Streptococcus species and even like Clostridium species, have been linked to SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Okay, so the point that I would get across here is that if you already have something like SIBO, and I know you've, you know, spoken about this many times, well, like IBS symptoms, which is irritable bowel syndrome. Well, I think, you know, in more recent research, they say that anywhere from about 7 to 80% of all IBS symptoms could be linked to something like SIBO. So if you've already got the fermentation issues in the gut, you've already got the gut motility issues, you've got SIBO, and then you get exposed to like COVID, well, you would think that a lot of these bacterial imbalances would just be even more exacerbated. Hmm. So so basically you're saying if someone had a bacterial imbalance, had some form of dysbiosis, SIBO, whatever, before they got COVID, then you're saying that the aftermath could be like a worsening or an exacerbation of these, these imbalances. What about what, though? What, and like just because there's just a couple other things that I want because that's really important and you can just use so many examples around that. Okay. And the other one that that obviously, you know, we had trouble getting this information out to the to the masses. Yeah. Okay. But the other one is like negative gram bacteria. Mm. And I know we do tend to harp on about this. Okay. But obviously we're talking about like the LPS, the lipopolysaccharides. Well, actually, there was uh, a hospital in Maryland in like in US, and that was dedicated just towards you know, COVID care. And actually they had a huge spread of multi-drug resistant negative gram bacteria strains in that instance. Now, are we going to just say that everyone who went in there, it was just because they were in the hospital setting Mm. that they just got exposed to the negative gram bacteria or did also a lot of these people already have like negative Mm. gram bacteria overgrowth. Um, And they actually showed that with something like 50% of deceased COVID-19 patients had some sort of like secondary infection and it was something like 10 out of 21. So I know it's not a huge sample, had secondary infection, okay? And this was coming from negative gram bacteria strains and predominantly Klebsiella, Klebsiella pneumonia or Klebsiella pneumonia, which is negative gram bacteria. And that has a huge link with SIBO and also like Escherichia coli or E. coli. So- you know, that's once again, like, so, so what I would say in this instance, okay, and even like, I think it was like ventilator associated pneumonia, there was like a third of these people who were on the ventilators who actually got this. And even though, I mean, I think the interesting statistic here is like 95% of those people were treated with antibiotics, but still got those complications. Okay. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, we've talked about this and we're not going to, go down that rabbit hole again, okay? But like negative gram bacteria is already naturally antibiotic resistant, mm. okay? And we're not even talking about the the development of that biofilm because obviously that biofilm makes it 100 times more antibiotic resistant. So so did the COVID cause the bacterial issues or did the bacterial issues cause the severe COVID outcome? Well, that's, the, that, you know, through the research, I can't, I can't make that definitive conclusion. Yeah. So just from a speculative perspective, okay, well, I mean- I see it all the time. Okay. Yeah. I see loads and loads of people 
who are not in hospital settings. So not in these settings where they say you're going to be more exposed to these mm. particular negative gram bacteria strains and they've got the negative gram bacteria overgrowth. Okay. Mm. So my big point here is that if you already have the negative gram bacteria overgrowth, once again, because the LPS raises the pro-inflammatory protein. So, so basically it's raising the same inflammatory molecules that COVID is raising. Yes. So it's just like, <laughs> it's just multiple, two really key. I mean, not only are these significant things, but obviously we know that the number one issue with COVID and why people get such severe acute infections is because, quote unquote, the cytokine storm. So obviously that's pretty significant. But, you know, we've talked about this before, like LPS, like that's, that's literally used in studies to stimulate things like interleukin-6. And so we're saying there's two of the most significant things that could possibly elevate Interleukin six, interleukin one. Well, even like alpha. the ones that I was talking about. So the MCP one. Yeah. That's raised by LPS. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, TNF alpha, NF kappa B. Uh, so you've got a bucket one, that's full six. and you're, you're putting a whole full bucket back into that full bucket in the first place, aren't you? Like it's just, and, of course. And a significant one also with like negative gram bacteria and LPS is that interleukin 32, which I've talked about because that actually increases other pro-inflammatory proteins. Mm. So... That's what I would say. Like if you've already got this, this negative gram bacteria overgrowth, so obviously I'm talking about the pathogenic strains of negative gram bacteria, mm. and then you, you, you get the infection, well, you can imagine what the response is probably going to be like. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I don't, like just one more aspect, I know there's some, there's some things that you want to get to, but even like just people who already had compromised beneficial flora, mm. there's some links around that. And obviously the big one is, you know, bifidobacterium. And they actually showed that even people had a depletion in bifidobacterium and I, I would say that can be a, you know a decent proportion of people but having the the depletion in the in the in the bifidobacterium actually and this was even like pre covid infection and actually like post covid infection infection what I'm talking about here okay but that led to even more immune regulation issues and actually it made them more symptomatic during the infection as well and also what they've shown like because you know a lot of the time they've shown that there is quite a uh, significant depletion in bifidobacterium okay and if you actually look at bifidobacterium which is positive gram bacteria but that actually helps with things like ige complications so we're talking about like histamine reactions um, and it also actually helps to balance out the inflammatory load so it actually helps to the balance between like th1 activity, which is like pro-inflammatory activity and TH2 activity, which is anti-inflammatory activity. So it actually helps to bring balance back to the seesaw. Okay. And even protects you against like foodborne pathogens like salmonella. And if you actually look at like, you know, bifidobacterium longium, which is one I've talked about before on the surface of that bacteria is a protein called FN3. And the FN3 binds to TNF alpha, which is one of those pro-inflammatory proteins that gets raised during the, the cytokine storm to actually help to bring down the inflammatory load. So you can obviously imagine if you've got a lowering in the bifidobacterium, you're also going to be, and, and they showed that in the research, okay? yeah. I mean, the, the, the symptoms of the COVID infection are more severe. Yeah. Okay? And also they actually showed, showed that bifidobacterium decreases the duration of the respiratory complications. Mm. And also it decreased instances around the, the fever as well. So it minimized the days that the person was actually experiencing fever. And just the last one on that, there was one like bifidobacterium uh, animalis. And they actually showed that that helped to inhibit interleukin-17. When you have an elevation of interleukin-17, which you can get in that cytokine storm, you get high neutrophil recruitment. 
And once again, that's that gastrointestinal neutrophil-mediated injury that I was talking about. And also, it actually helped to suppress pro-inflammatory proteins like TNF-alpha and NF-kappa B, okay? So, so once again, if you had already very low levels of like bifidobacterium and then you got COVID infection, you could see how that would be, you know, really exacerbate. I mean, once again, they actually showed that does exacerbate the symptoms. So if we were to kind of boil this down, I guess what we're saying is the areas we need to look at when it comes to long COVID would be damage or compromisation to lining tissue and epithelium would be one. Bacterial imbalances would be another. And then this lingering inflammatory state, you know, cytokines, maybe mitochondrial damage, like that would, even the spike protein, I guess that would all be lumped into one as well. And so if we address each of those categories and some are going to be more pertinent for different people, then that logically would be, I would say, a plausible way to look at how to, how to deal with long COVID, yeah? Definitely. And once again, that's just from, from, from our perspective. Yeah. I just want to you know, stress that point. We're trying to use our words carefully so we don't get sued or shot or something like that. <laughs> so let's look at those categories and let's talk about a couple of supplements that people could consider for each one of these. And, and perhaps let's start. I know that there's a lot to be said about this, their sort of structural integrity. So maybe let's, let's finish with that one. Maybe let's go to the other two first. And I guess maybe let's start with the last one. That's probably the quickest one to talk about. If we're talking about the inflammation piece, this is where things. So ultimately we're saying things that would potentially help with the elimination of the spike protein may still be beneficial there. Things that might actually help reduce some of these inflammatory interleukins we've talked about. So, you know, I know for me, I'm using things like, like quercetin, PEA. Um, yeah. Well, like I would say like, you know, Quercetin is great. I mean, because you just look at it, once again, from the research perspective, it interferes with N-kappa B, okay? Mm. It inhibits interleukin-1. It suppresses TA-17, interleukin-17. So a lot of thing, these things I've already mentioned, Yeah. okay? And so that means quercetin is, uh, you know, obviously, you know, we, we talk about quercetin all the time, okay? But also just for the pure assembly and expression of the tight junction proteins, just so just from a structural perspective as well. So it's covering many bases here. I would also say PEA from my perspective, okay? Yeah. You know, where you want to call it like in sort of like nature's like paracetamol or Panadol. I mean, I don't mind giving it that label, label, okay? But it's really good to just reduce the inflammatory load. Yeah. You can just use it as a natural painkiller, okay? Um, and also it's just really good to stabilize mast cell activity. And obviously that mast cell activity can be really exacerbated during something like a COVID infection, okay? Yeah. Uh, during that cytokine storm, okay? So, and also like... Uh, you know, PEA can actually help with uh, a bit of a side note, can actually help with a little bit of like inflammation around areas like the myocardium and the pericardium. Uh, I won't go much further than that, mm, okay? Mm. But, but if it's like myocarditis and pericard pericarditis, okay, then you, there's, PEA does actually have some benefits around that as well. Is, now, I would also use, personally, I use things like glutathione and NAD or some form of NAD. I've been using nicotinamide drivazide mostly. And I use that more. There's been some studies that show that it, it, it shortened the duration until recovery for a lot of people. And then, well, in the study when they used it, and also we tend to see depletion in things like NAD after infection. So for people experiencing more like from a fatigue aspect, that would be one that I'd be looking into. So 
again, the Katinema Derby side. Um, you say, other- sorry to interrupt, but like you could potentially say like a bit of a combination of like some sort of glutathione support. Like, yeah. Once again, that might totally depend on the individual. So whether it's something like an NAC or a liposomal glutathione yeah. or S-acetylglutathione with something like an NAD, okay? Yeah. Um, and with maybe potentially like a B1, like a thiamine, uh, just to actually help with uh, with the mitochondria. Yeah. Uh, so maybe a con- like, I don't know what you think about that, but maybe it's- Yeah, I mean, of- I also like to add in acetyl-L-carnitine. I don't know if you've seen any of the research on that. Uh, there's a lot of research pre-COVID that we're using it for like um, fatigue post-infections like cancer and like HIV and- Again, a lot of really promising results from like a fatigue aspect. So there's there's some limited data on COVID, but that's something I've used with a lot of clients, and that it's hard to know exactly what's doing what. But that would be sort of my my combo would be the glutathione support, the NAD, and the acetyl L carnitine, and together that seems to be having a big impact. Um, and one that I know we've just we've talked about, but neither of us have used, is an antioxidant named well called luteolin, and there's some interesting data around luteolin and long COVID and, and in terms of suppressing interleukin-1 and interleukin-6. So that would be something that I might probably look at using with clients in the future. I do want to mention curcumin because there'd be a, a temptation to use curcumin at this point. And I would say we need to be careful here because I am seeing a trend with people being low in ferritin at this stage and curcumin would further lower that ferritin. So I think it's great. You know, a lot of huge benefits when it comes to like inflammation and interleukin-6, but if someone had low ferritin, this would not be the time I'd be using curcumin. Well, hence why when the ferritin's, you know, really high, okay, then obviously <laughs> curcumin's perfect. Yeah, yep, yeah. exactly. Uh, and look, look, you could you could say that, I mean, obviously just because the benefits around the GI epithelial tissue and reduces oxi- oxidative stress, that it could be something that you just think, oh, that you know, go for that, Nika. Mm. But some of these other ones that we're talking about might be a little bit more significant in this instance. Yeah. So that'll help reduce some of the inflammation, help with the spike protein. Then I guess the next step is to check if there's any bacterial issues or or I guess support some of the bacteria that maybe was was lacking or insufficient in the first place. So you mentioned bifidobacterium before. Is that something you'd be using at this point? I, look, I, look, I would. And you've got to understand that there is definitely – some research to show that, you know, if someone's got like, you know, SIBO, that using something like a bifidobacterium, I mean, obviously it's quite hard to find like just bifidobacterium probiotics. Okay? Yeah. But obviously, you know, there's certain brands like Seeking Health, they've got a probiotic bifidobacterium yep. where you can just get like bifidobacterium strains. I think you might've told me that there like, is a life extension that actually just do like a bifidobacterium longum. Yes. So I, yep. I would actually say like a bifidobacterium longum in this instance, just because it's ability just to, you know, uh, you know, bring down the inflammatory load and, and bring down pro-inflammatory proteins like TNF-alpha, okay, uh, you know, pretty significant here, okay? Yep. So you could just directly use something like a bifidobacterium longium by life extension, okay? So, yes, I mean, once again, if you look at something like uh, the probiotic, the bifidobacterium, I mean, it's only, I'm pretty sure, like 12 billion, okay? So you don't necessarily need like- Don't go overboard, yeah. You don't need to go overboard. So it's almost like just like one tablet a day. Yep. And that might just be just after food, Okay. And maybe maybe if you can find one that has the animalis, okay, um, then that might just have some benefits around what I talked about with the interleukin seventeen and the NF kappa B and also the TNF alpha as well. So yes, I would uh, definitely in this instance use like a like a bifidobacterium uh, probiotic for sure. And and like in, and you they did show actually in research that just using a bifidobacterium probiotic 
improve the success rate of eradication with SIBO by in the realms of up to about 81%. Now, don't, <laughs> that doesn't mean you're going to take a bifidobacterium sub, uh, probiotic and you're just going to eradicate SIBO, mm. okay? but obviously it can be really supportive around that. Yeah, yeah. Well, is there anything else you would add in there? Would you use maybe a Saccharomyces or maybe a pomegranate husk? I'd definitely use uh, Saccharomyces blighty. And the, the reason being because it helps in the intestinal wall, okay? It helps in the induction of secretory IgA. So you're obviously helping with antibodies and immunoglobulins, okay? It's just so multifaceted, okay? I mean, because obviously parasitic infection, candida and yeast, okay, H. pylori, and it's, it's, pretty, it's very safeguard, okay? So you're not going to aggravate other opportunistic bacteria, um, and I'd probably include some, you know, bacillus strains, whether it's like, you know, coagulans or subtilis, okay, because obviously they're very good against, you know, negative gram bacteria strains, especially like Escherichia coli, uh, but also some of those pathogenic positive gram bacteria, especially like Clostridium. And, 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 and you can get definitely combos where they've got like Saccharomyces body and bacillus strains all in one. So You won't be able to get them from the chemist, yeah? It's, it's worth noting that if you go to a shop, they're probably not going to sell these. They're just going to sell a bifidobacterium lactobacillus blend. Maybe if you're lucky, there'll be a blend that has a little bit of Saccharomyces in it as well, but, but probably not. Um, so yes, you can get these blends, but you really do have to look online to get these. I know Dr. Axe's company, what are they, Ancient Nutrition or whatever, they've got some decent blends. Um, Dr. McCola has a, a decent blend out there that's got the spore-based organisms and the Saccharomyces boulardii. Is any that any others you use? Look, that would be the major ones that I use, but I'm sure there's other ones out there. Okay? Yeah, I'm sure there'd be other ones. I probably options. just haven't come across them yet, okay? But, you know, with the bacillus spores, like I have the tendency to use the microbiome labs, but I don't know if they do a combination with the with the saccharomyces bloody. Well, not to my knowledge anyway. I believe they used to, and I think they've discontinued that. Don't quote me, but I think that's the case. And obviously there's also Thorn. They do a, um, what, Permiclear, which has the bacillus uh, coagulins yeah. and then saccharomyces. And you know, I me, mean, I'm not always big on blends, but I'd actually say, like in this instance, something like a permaclear where it's got like quercetin and ginger yeah. and acetyl glucosamine, it's got L glutamine, okay, it's got saccharomyces bladi, it's got bacillus coagulin. It's a pretty good blend mm. in this instance mm. for, for, for obviously the complication that we're talking about. So, probiotics, you've talked about which ones. Personally, I like the idea of a pomegranate husk here. You know, this is a bit more selective. It's it's not going to damage the bifidobacterium and the lactobacillus, um, but obviously has some good antimicrobial properties and, and activity against some of the more pathogenic strains we might be dealing with. Do you think, like, is that something you've used with people or you'd be... I mean, I do love pomegranate husk, as you know, and I just think because you obviously get a huge amount of benefits around, like, hormonal balance as well. I mean, the one that, that I really like, as you know, is, like, monolurin. Uh, in this instance, okay, and actually the World Health Organization has even like got data on monolurin and they actually did find that people who had less severe COVID symptoms and even less instance of like long COVID had higher amounts of like monolurin circulating around their bloodstream. Now, does that mean they were actually taking monolurin as a supplement? No, okay, but obviously this would have been aspects around like, you know, coconut fat, coconut oil, okay, mm. so is the case that you could just take something like a, a really good quality like MCT oil because that does actually have lyric acid. I mean, obviously, most of the time you, you want the C8, C10, C12. Okay, so you want, yes, the lyric acid, but caprylic acid, capric acid as well. So it could be an MCT oil. It could be just coconut oil. 
I do like the monolurin, okay, just because there is good research on it. Uh, and that is just like lyric acid bound to glycerol. So there's just a higher uh, focus on the, the lyric acid in this instance. And lyric acid has got some benefits around testosterone. It's not really what we're talking about here, but also it's very good to stop like pro-inflammatory peptides and pro-inflammatory proteins causing a high amount of inflammation in the intracellular type junctions. But they actually showed that, you know, monolurin is effective against like all 150 different strains of like candida. Okay, so you're getting benefits there antiviral so they've actually shown that it even like had some aspects around inactivating even things like the measles virus i'm not saying that it's a cure for the measles but even you know there's some research around like hiv okay and actually corona COVID as well yeah okay and once again like you know don't ban us because i'm just talking about what they were talking about on the world health organization website okay so uh, it's there. The information's there. Okay. And also what, what I really like around monolurin when it comes to something like long COVID is just based on the research that I was talking about where there's, you get a higher abundance of these pathogenic strains of positive gram bacteria like streptococcus species. And that's what monolurin is actually really effective against. Okay. So some of the most multi-drug resistant bacteria strains, so things like Staphylococcus okay, or MRSA, monolurin, is actually highly effective against these multi-drug resistant bacterial strains. So if it's if it's like and and because they're seeing a little bit more of a higher abundance of some of these pathogenic strains of positive gram bacteria, once again that's where monolurin can be uh, extremely effective. And actually showed that the bacteria can just not build up a resistance to it. And also like monolurin's got some biofilm disrupting benefits. Okay, so I just think it covers a lot of bases. Um, what about colloidal silver? Do you think that could be a good combo? Um, look, I know, I know, I know that there is definitely some small amounts of literature around like colloidal silver with with COVID. Okay, I just think, uh, you know, for its biofilm disrupting properties. So, yes, I could see why there would be some benefits there. Mm. I mean, there probably would be. I mean, once again, I would say it can totally depend on the individual. Okay, yeah. and you know, for what we're talking about here, I'm just sort of saying something like monolurin might just cover a lot more bases. But for some for some people, based on maybe the the bacteria overgrowth that they've got okay there could be actually some other antimicrobials that might be more significant here mm. um and so like you said you could get that either just from like the monolaurin you can supplement with that directly or you could get that from a coconut oil um, yeah well there's lurisidin can- if you want to get it as a supplement okay and also there's like ecological formulas i mean there's and there's a lot more brands as well okay so mm. it's not that mm. hard to get but you might you, you do generally want a higher uh, concentration a lot of the time it's in the realms of about 3000 milligrams okay yeah uh, anywhere from i would i would go about 2400 milligrams to about 3000 milligrams if you're using it for the purpose of something like long covid yeah and like you said with the clotosilver that there's definitely some studies that show that it's quite effective against covid but also against various bacteria fungus yeast etc has some biofilm properties to it as well so i i think that would be an interesting combo would be combining the coconut oil or monolaurin with clotosilver to me that makes sense as a bit of a, a combination now we've covered two aspects now and the last and arguably maybe the most important is how we repair the, the damage to this lining tissue so what are some compounds that could help in this instance the one that i'm probably in love with at the moment but <laughs> as you quite rightly pointed out to me um, when we spoke about it, I'm not going to lie. It can be pretty hard to get. And I am talking about peptide therapy and I am talking about like GHK, the copper peptide. Now, if you actually look at it, GHK is just amazing for tissue repair. So, I mean, you like, and I'm not saying that BPC-157 is not going to have some benefits around this. I'm just basing it on some of the research. And especially when you've got 
you've had a raise in these pro-inflammatory proteins. Well, GHK is really good for suppressing interleukin-6 and also they actually showed that GHK helped to inhibit the synthesis of fibrinogen from the liver. Okay, now fibrogen is actually involved in the production of like you know, pro-inflammatory proteins like SAA, CRP, C-reactive protein. Um, this is to do with aspects around like the red blood cells sort of like sticking and clumping together. So you would just say like, once again, okay, I'm not like BPC, it's not that BPC-157 is not going to have some benefits here. Yeah. Okay, I'm just saying that GHK, which is just made up of, you know, three amino acids, basically. Um, you've got L-histidine, L-lysine, L-glycine, basically. So that's what the copper peptide is. So just from those inflammatory perspectives, but also what they've, they've actually used GHK for, they use it for tissue repair. And so they use it for tissue repair in the lungs. Um, they've even shown that obviously the, the, the aspect that they use for cosmetic realms, okay, is to actually help with rejuvenation of skin, like even like, you know, hair follicles, that's documented as well. But even other organs like the liver, they use GHK to actually help with uh, restoration of COPD. Once again, that's like inflammation in the lungs, it's like lung disease, and even to actually help with things like emphysema, asthma. So it actually helps with collagen synthesis, and it's actually helping with aspects around the basal cells and the progenitor cells. And that's obviously what I talked about right at the start. So the issue though would be, it's not the easiest thing to get. Okay? And obviously just a lot more effective through injectable. And obviously there's different dosaging, okay, that you, you tend Is to this just about. a sub-Q injection? How, if you're using this for like lung uh, tissue, like uh, what From are you From my doing? understanding, it's still still intramuscular, it's still subcutaneous, okay? So, yeah. So, from- so you would just, you could just inject in, in your glute, your deltoid and something, it should work systemically. Yeah, but also like there's obviously many different points that you could inject it into, okay, but like even just into the midline. Okay. Similar to what you would do with something like BPC-157. Okay. Because also like if if it's doing that within the lungs, it's also going to do that within the gastrointestinal Mm. tract. So basically it's it's going to help with like intestinal stem cells or the progenitor cells within the gut. Mm. And whatever we're doing within the gut directly transfers into the respiratory tract as well. So I would, you you know, you definitely want to be like covered both bases. Now, if you've had really, really severe issues around long COVID, okay, I would definitely do a lot of investigation with something like GHK. Okay. Now, look, if it, you know, the whole thing of injectable doesn't really appeal to you, then I couldn't see why not like using like BPC-157. I mean, it's still going to have benefits to the epithelium. Okay. And you could just use like an oral tablet. And obviously with BPC-157 orally, it's just uptaken a lot better. Okay. Than something like GHK. Yeah. So that could be an option, okay? But also you could just use things like goat's colostrum. So obviously you get the proline-rich peptides, okay? You get the lactoperoxidase, the lactoferrin, getting the immunoglobulins, and all that's also going to help with the uh, with the epithelium. Yeah, maybe even high-dosage L-glutamine, okay, as mm. well, okay? Maybe you're just doing that for, like, you know, me, like I tend to like to do like, like a high dosage for, you know, maybe a week, two weeks, okay? So that could be something because obviously, you know, L-glutamine is substrate for your immune system, okay? but obviously you need it for connective tissue. So that's going to be really beneficial for the epithelium and the gut lining as well. What about zinc carnosine? That seems like that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, that would definitely have some benefits as well. I mean, like you, you, there's definitely a lot of things you could throw in the mix mm. here. But I, you know, once again, I'm just going for something that's probably going to have the most bang for your buck. Mm. Okay? And for me, GHK, the copper peptide, is, is probably going to have the most bang for your buck. Okay. Mm. But once again, it's harder to get. Not everyone is going to be up for injectable. Okay. Mm. And generally, you have to do, you know, 
it might be as high as like five milligrams for like 10 straight days or two milligrams for 30 straight days. A lot of time that can depend on the individual as well. And also what you're trying to do it, what, what you're trying to utilize it for. Hmm. Is anything else you think would be important there? Like maybe a cod liver oil, do you think there'd be some benefit to that? Once again, I'm just looking from a like more bang for your buck. And I, hmm. like, once again, it's like something like GHK, goat's colostrum, even mega dosage L-glutamine. Once again, I'm a big fan of cod liver oil, as you know, because of the vitamin A and the vitamin yeah. D and the EPA and the DHA, okay? But I'm just talking like in this instance, when someone's just got that constant sort of like, you know, cough and respiratory uh, distress and the shortness of breath, I just think, you know, something like uh, GHK is just going to be a little bit more significant in that instance, just from my perspective. Now, I've got one more question. What about a desiccated lung? Have you thought about that? Definitely not against it. Mm. Yeah. Once again, I don't know how how much bang for your buck in that. Mm. So obviously, when someone's got to that point where they already had the issues with the basal cells and the progenitor cells, they already had that compromisation, and now they've got something like long COVID, something like desiccated lung. I mean, is it going to have some benefits for sure? Is it going to be significant enough in in that instance? Again, mm. well, from my perspective, not as significant as something like GHK, which. Once again, the literature is there, the research is there to show how significant it is around some of the most, you know, serious respiratory conditions. Mm. So if we were to put this all together, just to, to summarize. Well, GHK you- is cell protective as well. Okay. So I just want to chuck that in the mix. <laughs> Obviously, I seem pretty obsessed with GHK. Check out, check out Dave's <laughs> affiliate link for GHK at the end of this episode. <laughs> If only. Um, so, <laughs> exactly. so if, if we were to put this all together, and obviously not everyone's going to need all of this, yeah. But you know, if this was me, if I was experiencing long COVID symptoms and digestive symptoms out of that, and fatigue and and coughing, etc., then I would be using an NAC or a liposomal glutathione. I'd be using nicotinamide riboside. I'd be using you know probably some antioxidants in there, like the ones we mentioned earlier. Um, I'd be using maybe acetyl L-carnitine if I was fatigued. I'd be work- using a bifidobacterium and a saccharomyces and a spore-based blend. And then I'd be using some kind of, you know, potentially coconut oil, colloidal silver, something there just to support from an antimicrobial one, perspective. One yeah. Um, and then peptide therapy if available, whether that's GHKCU or BPC-157. I'd be using zincarnacine with that, probably a quercetin. Goes colostrum. Or oh, could be just like a mega dose of L-glutamine. Um, yeah, which, you know, I'm always a little bit hesitant with yeah, that. Yeah. Some people respond a little bit better or worse than others. And if your globulin's elevated, maybe not the best idea. But- it can totally depend on conversion processes. So yep. I want to make that clear. Not everyone necessarily responds well to that. Okay. Yep. But I'm just talking about just actually helping with the, you know, things like the gut-associated lymphoid tissue and yeah. the, even like the bronchial-associated lymphoid tissue and the NOLT you know, amino acid therapy is pretty significant around that. Yeah. So there's a lot there. I mean, I don't know. That's what, 10 different supplements, 12 different supplements we just listed. But the reality is if you're dealing with these symptoms 12 weeks, you know, six months later, if you're, you know, I've got clients who, you know, they, they were unable to work for months, you know. So realistically, what's going to be more expensive, using a dozen supplements for the next one or two months and getting yourself in a state where your, your health is better and your productivity is better or saying, nah, I'm not going to fork out money for supplements and then you're still sick six months later, you know. Or even use things to nullify, you know, like pain or yeah. inflammation, okay, and a lot of things that you're using in that instance, okay, whether it be things like ibuprofen, okay, 
just actually making that worse. Totally. I mean, you know, we didn't even touch on that, but, you know, Panadol, a lot of people using that depletes glutathione, um, you know, obviously. Oh, pure with the COX-1, the COX-2 enzyme, and then it's going to damage that lining glands, okay, compromising the epithelium even more. Yep, yep. Yeah, and that's mm. the thing. Like, like, a lot of the time, okay, you, you might get that short relief, yeah, okay, but you generally just, you're just kicking the can, you know, a little bit further down the road. Yeah. Any last thoughts, anything we didn't get to that you want to chuck in there before we conclude? I think we actually did a pretty good job in like <laughs> <laughs> just uh, give, I mean, give, look, give yourself a little testimonial there. Give, give ourselves a pat on the back. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, look, what I'd say also is that it, it can just totally depend on like what your underlying like bacterial issues yeah. were in the first place. Okay. So just yep. bear in mind, like, you know, some of the things that we've just said here, okay. Um, you know, they can be a bit more multifaceted, okay? They can be a little bit more safeguard, okay? But, you know, if you do have, like, underlying, like, negative gram bacteria issues, okay, yep. there can be other antimicrobials that could be more significant here. Yep. I mean, ob- obviously, if you've got complications around SIBO, well, you're just going to have to deal with the SIBO and also you're going to have to deal with the, you know, issues around the migrating motor complex and the motility issues and the, the complications that you've got within the gut lining. I mean, ultimately, that's what you've got to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think that's a good good place to finish. You know, this stuff might be enough to get you from point A to point B, but if there are underlying issues, then once you get to point B, you're going to need to look at those underlying issues, which maybe got you to that stage in the first place and, and you know, maybe is part of the piece as to why some of these symptoms lingered for so long in that individual case. So, you know, there's potentially going to be other things for you to look at after you get to a point where you're a bit you know, a bit healthier, a bit better, but we can't sort of underestimate the impact that things like SIBO or bacterial overgrowth or permeability could still have longer term. So there might be a little bit more to consider as well. Well, hopefully that conversation was helpful, guys. Hopefully for some of you guys still dealing with some of these symptoms, that's going to give you guys a little bit to think about and consider. Hopefully this, if our overlords are listening, don't don't censor this, please let this stay. But, you know, if you guys do have topics you want us to cover, we're all ears Please leave this review, you know, Dave's little review for himself at the end there probably doesn't quite cut it. So if you can leave this <laughs> review, we'll love that. Um, but as always, thank you guys for tuning in. You know, I know that there was a lot of complicated talk there and, and Dave loved talking about Nolt and Galt and Bolt and, <laughs> and all the other alts. Um, but we appreciate you guys getting this far. Thanks, guys. And as, as always, it's just like planting the seed. And if you want more information, you know, just reach out or ask us to talk about maybe particular topics within this. Okay? There's always more to talk about. Thanks so much for listening, guys. As always, we hope this podcast was helpful. If you want to continue to connect with us, our social media profiles are linked in the show notes. And don't forget, the contents of this podcast are for educational purposes only. None of the information provided in a gut feeling is intended to treat, diagnose, or give medical advice. So please consult a healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle.